0: Good morning, church. My name is Matt Davidson. And I'm the student leader here at Mosaic, and it is such a joy and privilege to get to teach you all this morning. And before we get started, I have an announcement to make. Uh, we have beach baptisms coming up on September 4th, which is next week, at 4 p.m. at Henderson Beach State Park. And what we're really excited about is that we have seven or more people from this body who are wanting to be baptized and express their new life in Christ. And so if you are a follower of Christ, yeah, you're excited about that. Um, but if you are a follower of Christ and you've not yet been baptized, but you're interested in that, um, and you haven't talked to somebody about that, then please come talk to one of us leaders. Um, or if you're here this morning and you're just curious about what it even means to follow Jesus and what baptism is all about, then please come talk to me or another leader here at Mosaic about that as well. We would love to get you guys, to tell you guys about Him. And so We're going to be continuing on in a series titled Romans 8, the best chapter of the Bible. And the analogy that Tad has been using for it is, if the book of Romans is metaphorically a mountain with Christ-centered doctrine on one side and Christ-centered living on the other, then chapter 8 is like the peak of that mountain. It's 39 verses that are packed full of truth for Christ-centered thinking And Christ-centered living. So this is why some scholars have referred to this chapter of Romans as the best chapter of the Bible. Now, this is not to say that Romans 8 is over every other chapter of the Bible because all scripture has come from God and is therefore a great word. So in that sense, Romans 8 is not any more or any less of God's heart than any other chapter of the Bible. But to paraphrase the words of the theologian Sinclair Ferguson... Romans 8 is more directly applicable to our lives than other books of the Bible, so you can see why some would favor it as the greatest chapter in the Bible. He says, Romans 8 has almost everything to be a backbone in order to understand who we are and who God is. So with that introduction, let's go ahead and pray and then turn to the Word and see what God wants to say to us this morning, shall we? Father, we need you. God, I, I need you. Apart from you, we can do nothing and we can have no life in us. Lord, I ask that as we draw near to you through your word this morning, that you would show us what you desire for us to see. Would you show us that our only hope is in you? Would you grant the presence of your spirit this morning so that we may be able to understand the love of Christ? God, I ask that I would decrease and that you would increase, that these words that would go forth would not be my own, Lord, but they would be yours, because I cannot do this on my own, Lord. Your spirit needs to speak this morning. I thank you for Jesus, and it's in his name that I pray. Amen. All right, so if you have a Bible with you this morning, you can go ahead and open it to Romans chapter 8, verse 5, or you can follow along on the screen behind me. But it says, starting in verse 5, For those who live according to the flesh Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. This is the word of God. Now I hope that I, um, my hope this morning is that to do something similar that I've been doing in student ministry for probably about the past year now, and it's simply this, to walk through a passage, make simple observations, ask simple questions, define simple terms, And then apply simple truths. So, that way, um, the way that we're gonna be doing that is by looking at our text and then asking these following questions. The first one what does it mean for some to live according to the flesh and for some to live according to the spirit? We need to answer that this morning. The next question is what does it mean for the mind to be set on the things of the flesh? What does that mean? What does that actually mean? The other one that's really important is, what does it mean for the mind to be set on the things of the Spirit? Probably a more important one that we should answer. What is at stake here in this passage is something that I really want to answer. And lastly, how do we set our minds on the things of the Spirit? How do we do that? If, that's, if we're going to define these things, then how do we do that? So let's start by walking through our text one more time. Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 8 says, For those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh... But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So the first few things that we can observe is that Paul uses the phrase set the mind five times in just a few verses. And we know that anytime God's word repeats an idea, that it's important, so we should figure out why it's there. So we see set the mind five times. We also see the word flesh five times. We also see the word spirit three times. So we clearly need to define some terms to understand what our passage is saying. Well, last week for the term flesh, Tad gave us the definition. Flesh is our fallen, human, sinful nature that is dead apart from Christ. Tad also explained that the real problem with the flesh is that its nature is that it does not naturally love and trust God. So what it's about is that it does not naturally love and trust God. Meaning the flesh has a nature that is centered or oriented around itself And it doesn't default to loving, trusting, and serving God. It's not what it does. So that's what the flesh and its nature is. But most importantly for the context of our passage, we need to remember that the reason the flesh is dead is because it doesn't have the saving work of Christ in it. It doesn't have the saving work of Christ in it. That's why it can only default to the things that oppose God, because Christ isn't in it. We also need to understand the spirit and his nature. Because as Tad said a couple weeks ago, the Spirit is often neglected and misunderstood. So we also need to better understand the Spirit in order to properly understand this passage. The Lord has led me to four key passages that I think biblically define who the Spirit is and what his nature is. It's unfortunate. (laughs) You know, this is totally off, uh, off the thing, but it could have gone a different way because I totally had like a video that I was going to show like I normally would in students or something. Um, so it could have had technical failures there anyway. Um, but anyway, let me say that again. So the Lord's led me to four passages that I think biblically define who the Spirit is and what his nature is. And I put these verses in your notes so you can go back and read them at a later time if you want to. And I would really encourage you to do that. I'm not going to get into everything those passages say now. Um, But I would really encourage you to do that. (laughs) Thanks, Josh. All right. So what I'm going to do right now, since I'm not going to explain everything in those passages, I'm just going to summarize what we see in those passages so we can hopefully better understand the Spirit and His nature. So in John 14, verse 16, Jesus says that he is going to give his disciples another helper. And what Jesus means by another helper is that Jesus has been the one who has been with his disciples up to this point. So for him to send another helper is Jesus treating the Holy Spirit as a person. We have to understand that the Holy Spirit is a person who is going to come and be a helper to them, just like Jesus has been a helper to them. So therefore, the Holy Spirit is a distinct person in the Trinity, just like Jesus and God the Father are members in the Trinity. In John 14, verse 25, Jesus says that the Spirit will bring to remembrance all of Jesus' words. John 15, verse 26 says that the Spirit will bear witness about Jesus, meaning that the Spirit will affirm that Jesus is the Savior of the world. In John 16, verses 13 and 14, Jesus says that the Spirit will come and guide the disciples into all truth, and that the Spirit will glorify Jesus. So from these texts, what we can see about the Spirit is first, that he is a person of the Trinity. Second, he is really about reminding us of God's word and affirming that Jesus is the Savior. And thirdly, he is most supremely focused on glorifying Christ. And we also need to remember that the, really, the other really important thing about the Spirit is that he gives life. He gives new birth. Jesus says in John chapter 6, verses 63, verse 63, that the Spirit gives life. Paul says in Romans 5 that the love of God has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And what he's really talking about there is being saved by Christ. He's talking about being made into right standing with God, not because of your own doing, but because of Christ dying on the cross. And in this exchange of Christ's life for ours, God gives us his Holy Spirit. He is the way that we are given life. Just like Josh preached a few weeks weeks ago where he basically said that when someone is truly found in Christ and has saving faith in Christ, that person has been born of the Spirit. The Spirit is in those whom he has saved, and we must remember this as we consider what our passage says today. So to recap real quick, because I've thrown a lot at you, the flesh is a fallen human sinful condition that has a nature that elevates itself and opposes God, while the Spirit is the third person of the Trinity that has a nature that glorifies Christ, calls us to God, saves us to God, and keeps reminding us about God. So now we might ask ourselves the question, what does it mean for some to live according to the Spirit and for for some to live according to the flesh? Like it says in verse 5 of our text. What does that mean? What's Paul talking about there? Well, Paul is speaking about two different types of people, two different types of natures. Now, what I mean by nature is depending on the type of person that someone is, everyone has a nature or an orientation that is based off of who they are. Now, that might sound simple, but we must view this passage through that lens, because if we don't, I think we can easily turn it into a self-help list of what we think we must do. We could easily, in our sinfulness, turn this passage into, I must work really hard to set my mind on the things of the Spirit. And if we walk away with that understanding of this passage, then I think that we will miss the point entirely. We won't be able to respond the way that God is calling us to. Like I was just saying a second ago, Paul is talking about two different types of people. Now, this might sound too simple, but stay with me because I think its implications are huge. Now, a context clue that we can look at is the Greek word that mean, uh, for live in verse 5. Also means to exist. So the Greek word in verse 5 also means to exist, meaning to presently exist is something. So either someone presently exists in the flesh And has not been saved, or someone presently exists in the Spirit and has been saved. That's what it means to live according to the flesh or according to the Spirit. Which one do you presently exist in? Which one are you? So, what Paul is talking about in verse 5 is that there's two different types of people. He's making a clear contrast between a person that is saved by Christ and a person that is not saved by Christ, a Christian and a non Christian. So, the answer to our first question of what does it mean for the for some to live according to the flesh and for some to live according to the spirit is this. I put it in your notes. Simply put, it means you are either a Christian or you are not. There is no other option. You are either a Christian or you are not. There is no other option. I guess I don't have my fill-in-the-blanks behind me for you, so (laughs) just let that sink in for a second then. Um, Now, some of you are probably like, well, duh, thank you, Captain Obvious, for telling me that there's Christians and non-Christians. But hear me this morning, you are either a Christian or you are not. There is no other option. Church, we really need to get this. Because when we do, the effects on ourselves and those around us is huge. And the urgency to act is never more. It's never more present. Allow me to explain what I mean by this. In the Gospel of Matthew, we get a snapshot of what things will look like when Christ returns. Because Jesus' disciples ask him about what, it is, what it's going to be like in the end. What's it going to be like in the end? And Jesus answers them that he will sit on his throne and he will bring his people into an eternity with him forever. But for those who are not his people, he will cast them away forever into an eternity apart from them, from him. So, Jesus is saying something about two different types of people here, which are the same two types of people that Paul is referring to in Romans chapter 8, verse 5. In Matthew chapter 25, verses 32 through 34, and also verse 41, Jesus says this listen, before him, meaning Jesus, will be gathered all the nations, meaning everybody, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates his sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you uh, from the foundation of the world. And then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Jesus is saying that there's only two types of people. There isn't any other kind of person, no middle ground, no third type of person. Either you're his or you are not. There are only people who are invited into eternity with him, and then there are people who are not. And we need to feel the weight of this reality so that we can rightly understand what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. Because if you are not one of his people who will be invited into eternity with him, I lovingly say to you, I hope the reality of an eternity after your life would spark an urgent desire for you to figure out which eternity it's going to be. That would be my appeal to you this morning. And I would want to tell you that your only hope is in Christ. Your only hope is in Christ. But if you are one of his people who will be with him in eternity, then I hope the weighty reality sparks an urgency in you that people are dying and they don't know who Jesus is. They don't trust in Jesus, so we can't play games with what our lives are rooted in. Whether we are a Christian or not matters. Whether others around us are a Christian or not matters, church, because an eternity is what's at stake here. Now, even if we clearly see the distinction between Christian and non-Christian that Paul's making in our text, we we could still wonder why such a simple truth here. And I would tell you, it's so our focus remains on the right thing. And what I mean by that is that if we conclude that this passage is talking about two different types of people, if we don't conclude that, then we will leave too much room to think that this passage is an instruction for us to work really hard in order to have a godly mindset. That's what we would take from this passage. But that's not the point of this passage at all. Now, don't get me wrong. In this moment, I am not saying that the whole Christian life means that we don't have to work hard. Because if we follow Jesus, we really do have to work hard at times. Getting into his word, fighting sin, it's not what I'm saying as a whole as a Christian. um, But it's in Christ's power to begin with, um, to fight our sin daily. If you spend enough time with me, you'll hear me say this idea of fighting sin and stuff like that a lot. But it's not what I'm saying as a Christian as a whole. I'm just talking about this passage that's not saying for us to work hard. I'm not saying that we don't work hard as Christians. Just not in this passage. I'm just saying that working hard isn't what our passage is about because the point of our passage is to focus on our identity in Christ. That's the point of this passage. And then the orientation of our lives will flow from the reality of which identity we have. Does that make sense? Hopefully? Okay. So now we should be left with the questions. What is a mindset on the things of the flesh? And what is a mindset on the things of the spirit? Because those are the two other things that we see in verse five. So what's that all about? Well, Paul What Paul is doing here is speaking about the nature of each type of person, meaning that as we have seen, there are only two types of people, one that is Christian and one that is not. And Paul goes on to say that each identity has something that it sets its mind on. Now, the simplest way that I can define what it means to set a mind on something is this. Setting the mind on something is talking about its nature, meaning that it has an orientation around the thing that it's set on. It's centered around the thing that it's set on. And to be clear, it's not talking, it's not centered around it because it's working really hard to be set on it. But instead, this orientation is because of its identity. Who it is has made it the way that it is. Who it is has made it the way that it is. So what then does Paul mean by each of the things that the mind can be set on? The first one that I would say is in your notes for defining the mind that is set on the flesh, and it's this. It is a dead mind. That is apart from Christ. It's dead because it's apart from Christ. And it has a natural orientation that is only towards its own concerns. Its natural orientation, what flows from it, is only to be centered around whatever it cares about, our natural, fallen, human, sinful nature. So this is why it's important that we understand the context of the passage and that Paul is referring to two different kinds of people with consequent natures, because a mind that is set on something isn't about someone trying really hard to set their minds on something. It's Deeper than that. Their mind, Paul is saying, is set on the flesh because it is of the flesh. They don't have the saving work of Christ in them, and they are dead apart from him. Now, church, I know that some of you right now may be doing what I do at times, and you might be pained right now thinking, well, I still have this struggle of the flesh, right? It feels like I'm oriented around sin and doing what I want. So what does this mean for me? What does this passage mean for me? But I would encourage you not to despair And not to listen to the lies of the enemy who wants to cripple you. But instead, I would encourage you to listen to what God says about you. If you are in Christ, you are secure, you are not condemned. Instead, you are loved, and you are being worked on. You're being worked on. You weren't born of the Spirit and then into perfection, right? So trust what God says about you. And that he, started, he who started a good work in you will bring it until completion. So what you need to hear is that my definition of the mind on the flesh leaves room for the reality that we are not instantly perfected when we are saved by Christ. Because this passage is not calling us to work hard. Instead, it's calling us to focus back on our identity. So make sure, dear Christian, that your identity is in the right place. Make sure that it's in Christ. So this is why the definition for the mind set on the flesh, I have said that it is a dead apart from Christ because this verse is only about us if we are not saved by Christ. That's the person who's set on the flesh is only talking about us if we are not saved by Christ. It's not talking about our performance here. And to encourage you even more, let me make make it clear that having a mind set on the flesh isn't defined by occasional struggles and failures and backslidings with sin. Instead, it's about a nature because of our identity, meaning who you are and what you are oriented around, which is why I've also defined the mind of the flesh as an orientation around only its own concerns, meaning that a mind that is set on the flesh is the mind of someone that has not been saved by Christ, so they have absolutely no desire for Christ, absolutely no affections for him. They're oriented around only themselves because they haven't had their eyes open to the beauty of the love of Christ. They don't hear his voice, and they aren't broken over their sin. So Paul is not talking about performance here rather than identity. So with that in mind, let's see what it means to have our mind set on the things of the spirit then. How I've defined this in your notes is the mind that is set on the spirit is an alive mind because of Christ. It's alive because Christ has done the work in you, not because it works really hard. And it also has an unnatural inclination to be drawn towards God and His concerns. I didn't say perfection. Inclination, church. If you hear His voice, listen to His voice. It has an unnatural, out of ourselves, inclination to be drawn towards God and His concerns. It's not talking about someone who works really hard to set their mind on the things of the Spirit. It's talking about that person's orientation. And so, for those who have a mind that is set on the Spirit, it means that they have the Spirit. It means that they have the Spirit. That means that something unnatural has happened to them. What has happened to them is that they were saved by Christ and they were given an unnatural inclination for the things of God by the Spirit. What I mean by this new unnatural inclination is all of a sudden, they long for God, have desires for God, have affections for him, and they want to be drawn towards him. Another way that we could say this, I put this in your notes, It's when the mind is supernaturally transformed and then positioned upward rather than inward or worldward, right? Did you catch that? one part that I say at the beginning. The mind of the believer is supernaturally transformed, meaning that there is something that has happened to us. And what has happened is that we've been saved by Christ. And in that transformation of being saved by Christ where the old has passed away and the new has come, Our orientation and what we are centered around and focused on is positioned upward all of a sudden, meaning that our affections, our desires, our longings, our hope, it's all turned towards God. We look upwards to him rather than having affections that are inward and focused on self. We have an orientation that is upwards rather than outwards, meaning that we have affections for God more than we have affections for the things of this world We have an affection for God more than our stuff in this world, so we seek to glorify God with our stuff. So that is what I think the Lord wants us to show show us regarding what it means to set the mind on the flesh and to set the mind on the spirit, which means that the next question that I was curious to answer was, what's at stake? What's at stake here? Well, if there's only two types of people, Christian and non-Christian, if a person either has an orientation around self and sin or they have a supernatural inclination towards God and his concerns, what's at stake? I would answer you like this. The stakes are either death and misery, this is in your notes, or absolute fullness of life, and either opposition against God or submission to God. Now, where I'm getting this is that verses 6, 7, and 8 says... For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So, to see the point that I just made, we need to know what death means here. We need to understand what death means. Interestingly enough, in the Greek, death here is not only referring to the physical death that happens at the end of our lives. It's also not only talking about death that's in the Bible, meaning eternal separation from God. What's really interesting here is that death is also referring to misery in this life now. And if we think about it, it makes sense, right? Because life in the flesh and having a mind that is set on the flesh is a life entirely apart from Christ. And if we think about that for a second, what's the most miserable thing about an eternity apart from God? It's miserable because it's apart from God. It's not only that hell is a bad place because that's not really what's miserable about hell. What's so miserable about hell is that it's entirely apart from God. Likewise, when we are not saved by Christ in this life now, it's miserable and it will also lead to an eternal death. We can understand why it's so miserable when we see what the alternative is, which is to have life with Christ, life in the Spirit. And this life uh, with Christ is one that brings life and peace, as our text says. Now, I want to define what those words uh, mean in just a sec, but first, think about life with Christ for me. Because when we have life with him on this earth, we have a hope that we can look to Because there is an eternity with no more pain, no more tear, no more suffering, no more sickness, and no more death. But best of all, Christ will be there. Christ will be there. Jesus also says in the Gospel of John that remaining in him, abiding in him, and having life with him brings fullness to your life. Not just coasting where there's stuff to do and no real purpose or meaning in your life. Instead, Jesus is saying that when you have life with me... When you are saved by me, you will have a fullness to your life, and you will find purpose and fullness in your life. And that is exactly what Paul is referring to in verse 6, where he says that the Spirit is life and peace. The Greek word for life here literally means absolute fullness of life. Paul is saying that being saved is the absolute fullest kind of life that you can have. So we see what the stakes here are in this passage are either death and misery or absolute fullest kind of life in Christ, both in this life and in the next, but we can also see that the stakes are either that there is an opposition against God or a submission to God. Look at verses 7 and 8 with me again. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. What Paul is saying is that the mind that is not saved is an enemy of God. That's what hostile means there. It's an enemy of God. It's in opposition to God, and as we see in the rest of the verse, therefore it cannot submit to God. And this is important for us to see, church, because it is a gracious warning from God that if we are not saved by him, if we do not trust in Jesus, then we are one of his enemies. And we do not want to be one of his enemies, church. This is a great this gracious warning is also a call from God to not be one of his enemies so that we can be in submission to him. If we think about it this way, Paul is saying something negative that we can say differently but in a positive way. Now, what I mean by that is that Paul is saying that that our flesh, apart from Christ, is an enemy of God, and it does not submit to God, and it cannot please God. Well, instead we could say that a life that is made new by the Spirit is able to submit to God. And that is pleasing to God. Hope you guys see that connection. So we're either either in opposition against God or by the work of the Spirit, we are in submission to God, church. Now the only question that we have left is, how do we set our minds on the Spirit? How do we do that? I would say it to you like this. By denying ourselves through following him. Last point that I have in your notes. By denying ourselves through following him. You see, church, if we realize that we are either a Christian or not, with a mind that is either supernaturally oriented around Christ or not, and if we realize that the stakes are life and death with either opposition against God or submission to God, then hopefully we also realize by now this passage isn't talking about what we must do, church, but rather someone who we must be, and that someone that we must be is someone who is surrendered to Christ. Jesus tells us that the one who has surrendered to him and wants to come after him is the one who will deny himself, take up his cross, and follow after him. Christ says that he will give life to that person, the life, life to the one who surrenders it to him. But before I close, you might be wondering, well, how did I get here? Some of you might be like, Earth to Matt, you were supposed to teach on Romans 8, chapter, or chapter 8, verse 5 through 8, right? Um, and I hope some of you are wondering that that question. Um, because I hope that the Lord shows you what he showed me in a new way this week. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter, good old excited and bold Peter, right, answers, you are the Christ, the Son of God. Peter realizes that Jesus is the Savior of the world, God himself walking among them. And Jesus' response to Peter is, Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven did. Jesus is not saying that Peter worked really hard to get it, to figure it out, but that God revealed it to Peter. God did the work and opened up Peter's eyes to see Christ for who he really is, and that sounds a lot like what the Lord does when he gives us his spirit, doesn't it? But it gets even better than this here in Matthew. In the next few verses, we see that Jesus tells his disciples that he was going to be killed and then raised on the third day. And then it says that Peter took Jesus aside and began to correct him, telling Jesus that that will never happen to him. Pretty bold of Peter. And Jesus' response to this is exactly what the Lord has led me to this week. Jesus says in Matthew sixteen twenty three, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but rather the things of man. And there is the connection to our passage today. But it still doesn't quite answer the last point that I made about denying ourselves and following Christ. So what's that all about? Well, if we keep reading right after verse, uh, right after verse 23 and verse 24, right after Jesus says this about Peter not setting his mind on the things of God, Jesus then tells his disciples, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow after me. And what the Lord showed me this week is that it is no mistake that this is right on the heels of Jesus talking about setting the mind on the things of God, because it's a passage that's about surrendering to Christ. It's because the mind the, that is set on the Spirit is really about being saved and surrendered to Christ. That's what it's really about. It's not about doing a huge list of things in order to get a mind that is set on the Spirit. Instead, it's about one thing that we must do daily, which is surrender to Christ. And he wants you to surrender to him, church. That is his message this morning. Let's pray. Father, you are so good, Lord. I pray that um, you would have spoken and touched people's hearts by your spirit, Lord. Not by my words, but by yours, Lord. I pray that things... (laughs) would be open in people's minds of the realities of what all of our calls is, Lord. It's not about a list of do's and don'ts, Lord. It's about who we are in you. I pray that people would respond this morning by, if they are a Christian, that they would remember who they are in you, Lord. That even as a Christian, we can still examine our lives and reorient our focus onto our identity in you. And if people are not a Christian here this morning, Lord, I pray that you would have worked in such a way in their hearts that you planted seeds, opened up eyes, are speaking to them, poking at their hearts, Lord, for them to wake up, Lord. You're you're calling all of us to wake up and surrender to you, Lord. Um, So would you help us to do that uh, in the coming weeks um, of our lives? I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.